This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to a special edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University. Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin announced that they had reached an agreement on a new legislative package, reviving key portions of the Build Back Better package from last year. One of the key tax provisions would be a tax on financial accounting income. This idea is something that Jeff and I have discussed extensively. I thought it might be useful to compile some of our recorded thoughts and release them as a special Tax Chats episode. To begin, I'll share two tax shorts. The first was released as episode 12, and the other was never released. This latter short was not released because its content is largely drawn from two op-ed articles I published in the Wall Street Journal. I'll link to those articles in the show notes. After the tax shorts, we will listen to an excerpt from episode 58, in which Jeff and I interviewed Lillian Mills, current dean of the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Lil has published many articles that examine the economic consequences of the differences between financial accounting and tax accounting. Near the end of our interview, I asked her to share her opinion on a hypothetical tax on financial accounting. I think her answer is beautifully articulated and makes some interesting points. Finally, I will include the full content of two episodes from our very first recordings before we started releasing episodes through the Tax Chats podcasts. I hope you find the content informative and helpful as we once again engage in public debate about the merits of a tax on financial accounting income. Is a tax on financial accounting earnings a good idea? Readers of the financial press are bombarded with headlines every time a large, profitable company pays little or no tax. In the past few years, we have read that Amazon.com reported more than $11 billion in profit but paid no tax. FedEx lowered its tax bill to zero despite over $5 billion in profits. And Salesforce.com paid no tax while reporting over $2 billion in profit to shareholders. These headlines sell newspapers, generate clicks, and fan the flames of political rhetoric. And they also beg a seemingly simple question. Why not simply tax the profits reported to shareholders? The U.S. and every other developed nation has two accounting systems. One that calculates income reported to shareholders, and one that calculates income reported to the taxing authorities. Financial accounting rules were created by the Apolitical Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, to provide information useful to investors as they deploy their scarce resources. In contrast, tax accounting rules are largely determined by Congress to achieve myriad objectives, such as raising revenue, encouraging or discouraging certain behavior, and the redistribution of wealth. Because lawmakers recognize the importance of pursuing social objectives through the tax system, while also recognizing that investors need comparable, reliable, and timely information to make decisions, two accounting systems are necessary. Because the objectives of the two systems are so different, the income that is calculated by the two systems is also different. 
In some years, the discrepancies can be large. In some years, a company might appear to have paid a very low amount of tax if its taxable income is low compared to its financial accounting income. In other years, the same company might appear to have a high amount of tax if its taxable income is high compared to its financial accounting income. These latter occurrences, however, go largely unnoticed by the press because they don't sell newspapers or generate clicks. Observing differences between financial accounting and tax accounting is not a reason to tax financial accounting income. Instead, it is evidence of a system that works, allowing Congress to pursue its objective without clouding information reported to shareholders. Placing a tax on financial income is a terrible idea. Blurring the lines between taxable income and financial accounting earnings would inevitably lead to political meddling in the financial accounting rules and damage the usefulness of financial accounting in the decision processes of investors. Because the government revenue would be tied, in part, to financial accounting income, politicians would be tempted to impose their objectives onto the financial accounting system. If any political objective were to enter the rulemaking agenda of the FASB, accounting standards would immediately deteriorate because Congress and the FASB have vastly different objectives. Moreover, companies would inevitably respond to a tax on financial accounting income by changing their financial accounting practices. Companies constantly play a game of cat and mouse with the taxing authorities to report income from the tax system as low as possible while complying with the law. A similar game would almost certainly begin with income reported to shareholders if it were taxed. There are better ways for Congress to address companies paying little tax relative to financial income. Congress can fix the tax code. In 2019, Amazon reported over $11 billion in profits and paid no federal income tax, largely due to deductions Amazon received after compensating employees with restricted stock. The solution? Reduce deductions on restricted stock. In 2018, FedEx reported more than $5 billion in income and paid no federal income tax, largely a result of accelerated depreciation deductions from purchases of equipment and machinery. The solution? Roll back bonus depreciation and other investment tax benefits. And the list goes on. Companies often report low tax payments because they have posted losses in the past. They have significant investments in sustainable energy. They operate in countries with low tax rates, and so on. Each of these issues could be dealt with by changing the tax laws. As a society, however, we might agree that we want to give tax deductions for payments to employees and investments in equipment or buildings. Many would agree that those objectives are important. But to give those tax benefits, the tax accounting system has to be modified to reflect something other than economic reality, such as depreciating machines in one year for tax purposes instead of spreading out the charges over the useful life of the machine as financial accounting rules would require. Is taxing financial accounting a good idea? No. If society values the apolitical nature of financial reports to investors and simultaneously recognizes the importance of Congress having the ability to pursue social objectives through the tax system, then taxing financial accounting is a no-go. So the next time someone asks you whether a tax on financial accounting is a good idea, you have the answer. What are the pros and cons of taxing financial accounting income? When a company reports high profits to shareholders, 
but low taxes to the government, public outcry often follows. How is it possible to make so much money and not pay taxes? Many people are dismayed to learn that companies use two different sets of accounting rules when calculating income for shareholders and the Internal Revenue Service. Indeed, the rich appear to be playing by a different set of rules. Like every developed country, the United States has two accounting systems, each designed to achieve different objectives. Financial accounting rules are created by the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or the FASB. These rules are designed to create reports that provide information to investors as they deploy their scarce financial resources. For example, FASB tries to create accounting rules that produce comparable financial reports, meaning that similar economic transactions will be reported to investors in the same way. This helps investors compare companies and enables investors to provide resources to those companies that will use their capital most effectively. Tax accounting rules are created through the legislative process. Tax rules are designed to achieve several objectives. First, lawmakers levy taxes to raise revenue. You probably learned in elementary school that the revenues collected through the tax system are used to fund the military, build roads and parks, and pursue a multitude of other public objectives. A second objective, not usually covered in elementary school, is that sometimes lawmakers use taxes to encourage or discourage certain types of behavior. For example, if a company invests in solar panels, it might qualify for a tax credit, encouraging companies to invest in sustainable energy. In contrast, if a company has to pay fines for illegal activities, the government does not give a tax deduction, discouraging illegal actions. There are extra taxes on tobacco and alcohol to reduce their use, but tax credits for having children to help struggling parents. A third objective, often politically controversial, is that lawmakers use the tax system to redistribute income and wealth. The rich pay more tax per dollar of income than the poor. In addition, the poor often qualify for special tax breaks and other government programs intended to help them overcome their unfortunate circumstances. So what are the pros and cons of this system? The biggest argument in favor of taxing financial accounting income is that it uses incentives to increase tax compliance. It is generally believed that companies have an incentive to report as much income to their shareholders as possible, and it is also generally believed that companies have an incentive to report as little income to the Internal Revenue Service as possible, all else equal. If the financial accounting system and the tax accounting system are separate, it might be possible to have the cake and eat it too, reporting high income to shareholders under one system while reporting low income to the tax authorities under the other. However, if taxes were levied on financial accounting income, then the incentive to report high income to shareholders would be offset by the pain of paying taxes on that high income to the government. This might reduce over-reporting of financial accounting income while also reducing under-reporting of tax accounting income. There are several arguments against taxing financial accounting income. First, if taxes are tied to financial accounting income, Congress will want to have some control over how income is calculated so it can achieve its objectives. This would lead to the politicization of financial accounting rules and make financial accounting less informative. Second, if financial accounting were to become politicized and less informative, it would not change the demand investors have for information about the economic performance of the firm. Companies would likely respond by providing pro forma earnings numbers, 
a controversial accounting practice because pro forma numbers are largely unregulated. Third, taxing financial accounting income would reduce Congress's ability to influence behavior using the tax system. When Congress wants to provide incentives to influence behavior, it often takes actions that change the tax accounting system. For example, to induce investment in machinery, Congress might enact accelerated depreciation rules. This allows companies to record more of the cost of a machine early in its life, reducing income and therefore reducing the tax bill. But recording accelerated depreciation does not reflect economic reality. The machine might be useful for 10 years and financial accounting rules would require the company to spread that cost over that time period, not one or two years like accelerated depreciation might allow. If a tax were imposed on financial accounting income instead of tax accounting income, or in addition to tax accounting income, the incentive to invest would be lost because the tax break would be eliminated. Thus, taxing financial accounting income would reduce the ability of Congress to pursue political, social, and economic objectives through the tax system. Accounting researchers have generally argued that the costs of taxing financial accounting income outweigh the benefits, and that two systems are necessary. Empirically, every developed country in the world has come to the same conclusion, allowing significant differences between financial accounting and tax accounting. So the next time someone asks you why companies are allowed to use one set of rules to report income to investors and a different set of rules to report income to the Internal Revenue Service, you know the answer. And if someone wants to have a friendly debate about whether a new tax on financial accounting should be enacted, you can confidently articulate several of the most important issues to consider. Last, last question, okay? Another one to speculate on. There has been some movement uh, in the last couple of years to impose a tax on financial accounting earnings. I can't think of anyone, and by the way, Jeff and I have both written publicly about this in the Wall Street Journal and other places. I think you are probably the most qualified person on the planet to have an opinion about that. I wonder if you wanna share it with us. Sure, I think that's a very bad idea. Um, we have financial reporting for a reason. We, we as an accounting profession, work very hard on what standards of reporting provide the most useful information to shareholders and creditors and other stakeholders. And that's the aim of the International Accounting Standards Board, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, certainly the um, uh, regulators like the Securities Exchange Commission. They have a particular stakeholder group that they're trying to provide fair information to. Taxation has a bundle of other stakeholders. We're trying primarily to raise money to fund the government. And that's true whether it's the United States or Germany or South Korea. But Mixed in with what would be optimal, efficient taxation is a huge bundle of political considerations. So economists might argue it's inefficient to tax dividends or dividends plus corporation income, but 
politically it's infeasible to to eliminate that because of the socioeconomic perceptions of who it helps and who it hurts so given that the tax system is both revenue raising and an economic lever in good or bad years to permit faster write-offs to not permit to subsidize industries that the government thinks are important to penalize other activities um i just i i have i have a fairly strong opinion that taxing the financial reported income is distorting to the capital markets and if Congress thinks the tax system has too many loopholes, they need to fix the tax system. That's what we elect our Congress to do, among many other things, is pass laws and tax laws are one of them. So when I have watched tax laws that say we're going to tax something around book income, It is a substitute for the backbone to actually address the tax loophole. Um, if you are familiar with uh, business, you know that there are financial accounting rules which are set by the Financial Accounting Standards Board. We call them GAAP, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And typically we have something like revenue, we take out expenses, that gives us pre-tax income, then we have some tax expense, and we get net income. What many people are not as familiar with is there is an alternative accounting system, which is governed by the rules set by Congress and enforced by the Internal Revenue Service, codified in the Internal Revenue Code, and that those rules create a different accounting system. And in that tax accounting system, there are revenues and there are also expenses. We don't call them expenses sometimes for tax purposes. We call them deductions, but same thing. And once we take the deductions away from the revenues, we come up with taxable income. We multiply taxable income by the corporate tax rate, maybe take out some credits, and we end up with the amount of tax that gets paid to the government. Well, it turns out that because those two systems are fundamentally trying to achieve different objectives, they end up treating revenues differently and they treat expenses differently, and therefore the earnings numbers or the income numbers are quite different often. So, for example, the, the tax rules are set by Congress who have at least three objectives. One is to raise revenue. One is to encourage or discourage behavior. So we see this in all kinds of ways. For example, we give tax breaks to companies that invest in sustainable energy or something like that. And then a third one would be the redistribution of wealth. Now, I know Jeff is going to want to chime in right now because Jeff says there's a fourth purpose, which is what, Jeff? Fourth purpose is to get politicians reelected. I mean, you look to at a lot, a lot of things in our tax code and you can really only explain it without a actual purpose. There are some very strange things which sometimes don't fit any of those objectives, and, but they do sort of fit with the let's get reelected. Okay, so that's what politicians are trying to accomplish through the tax system. In contrast, the Financial Accounting Standards Board is trying to make rules that 
provide financial statements that are informative to investors as they make decisions to allocate their scarce resources. Well, when we start to examine whether or not a firm has paid its fair share in taxes, what we tend to do is we take something like the amount of tax the company paid, and that comes essentially by using the tax accounting system, and we divide that number by the pre-tax income, which comes from the financial accounting system. And in many situations, this creates uh, large discrepancies where the amount of tax appears very low compared to uh, the pre-tax income that's reported to shareholders, or in some cases, actually, it's quite high. So some famous cases recently, you may have heard that a few years ago, Amazon earned something like $11 billion in accounting profits but had no tax. Um, I know that this past year, Salesforce was accused of having $2.6 billion in profits and not paying any tax. Maybe last year in the New York Times, uh, FedEx was... Uh, highlighted for having no federal tax, but $5 billion of income. So this, this is like a common issue. And when we see these numbers that make it appear as though big companies are not paying their fair share, there is often very strong political motives for um, figuring out how to make them pay more. And there are two possibilities. One is change the way we account for income on the tax side. And the other is make companies pay taxes on the financial accounting side. And this proposal is essentially uh, taking the latter approach by seeking to make at least some corporations pay taxes on their financial accounting earnings if they haven't paid enough tax when calculating their tax liability using the conventional system. Okay, so um, why is this a big deal? I think that Jeff and I, at some level, are uniquely suited among, not, not uniquely, but as tax accounting academics, a tax on financial accounting income is something that accounting tax people probably have a little more understanding of as compared to, say, a typical economist or a typical lawyer. Not that they don't understand, but we spend our lives thinking about and teaching about financial accounting and how it interacts with the tax system. And when one thinks about these two, um, this possibility of taxing financial accounting income, the financial accounting accountant in me, and I think in Jeff, starts to scream, ah, this is scary and maybe not like a great idea. And there's many reasons why that could be. I'm going to highlight one, and then I'm going to turn it to Jeff, and I'm sure he'll have lots to say. So the first thing that bothers me about imposing a tax on financial accounting income is that once a tax is attached to a number, the policymakers, Congress, will be very tempted to use their influence to determine how that number is computed. In other words, Congress might be tempted to pressure the Financial Accounting Standards Board to adopt certain policies with regard to recognition of revenue or recognition of expenses to make sure that they get the outcome that they desire, that Congress gets the outcome it desires. 
But financial accounting is set with an alternative purpose, which is to provide information to investors. And there's a significant amount of accounting research that would say if uh, taxes are based on financial accounting income, the financial accounting income could very easily become less informative and harm investors or others who use that information because it's no longer reflecting its apolitical motive of providing information. Jeff? I think that's, I mean, that, that, that point you bring up is super important, right? You said that there would be two ways to solve this problem. One would be to, for the, to change the internal revenue code and just like get rid of some of the things that make it so companies don't pay much in tax. The other is to tax financial accounting income. Um, I mean, left implicitly stated is who would actually be making the changes to the internal revenue code. It would be Congress because Congress is the one who created the internal revenue code. So they create this system that makes it so companies don't pay enough in tax, at least according to some members of Congress, and yet they're unwilling to change that system that they've created. And so I, to me, this just kind of implies or suggests kind of the, the ineptitude of Congress that they uh, have all these like weird political incentives to do strange things that get to the place we want. And so what you're saying is we're going to have these same political incentives layered on financial accounting income, which is really kind of scary, right? So it's a very, very common in the United States to like not think that highly of Congress and think that they are all just like out to get reelected. Um, public opinion of Congress is at a very low place right now. Uh, it's never been super, super, super high. We suspect politicians of all these things. We don't like our internal revenue code. Um, you know, we have all these problems. So these are concerns like everybody has, everybody's unaware of these things, um, those aren't actually shared with by financial accountants about the Financial Accounting Standards Board or Financial Accounting Standards, right? Certainly people like have concerns about specific things, but the Financial Accounting Standards Board who creates the rules for book income is pretty highly regarded, both in the United States and worldwide. They're a pretty serious body who really are out just to try to, try to create the best standards possible. And um, to the extent we like layer these political incentives on top of that, it's really kind of scary what could happen. So um, here's an example. If you don't like that FedEx paid zero in tax on $5 billion of income, if you dig into their financial statements, you realize that what happened was they took a whole lot of accelerated depreciation deductions, which, of course, Congress allowed them to do by passing standards that give Accelerated but not, depreciation. not allowed them to do. Encourage them to do. Congress like, passes this law that says we have an idea. We'll let you take more depreciation so you invest more, and that's going to like help things. And so then and they so do when that. They and invest they say, more. Ah, we take it back. We don't want you to do that anymore. We're going to tax it now because I guess we changed our minds or something. And the and the and so one so so one simple solution to that would be repeal the accelerated depreciation deductions, right? Yep. And okay. And if you're Amazon and you have 11 billion and it's in income and pay no tax because you have a lot of tax deductions based on the restricted stock that you grant to your employees, you could clearly change the way that deductions are given for restricted stock grants. It could easily be done. But instead of doing that, we're going to tax financial accounting income. Well, when you say it could easily be done, uh, I mean, that, that's false, actually. It can't easily be done, which is a guy to the problem. It can't easily politically be done. It would be, that's right. it would be easy technically to do. Uh, it's quite hard politically, and so this is all, and this is part of what I think frustrates financial accountants. So this is we're not, not necessarily that political of beings. Like we, we are into debits and credits and tax numbers, and, um, and so to, 
to force a political change to the system because it's like politically difficult to do something, I think frustrates us a little bit. I think this, the second thing, the Amazon case that you mentioned, is because of the difference in financial accounting for uh, stock-related compensation, right? I think that's a super fascinating case because that's one of the most important cases in, in which Congress already has meddled with the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So I think, I mean, you can tell me if you agree with this or not, but had Congress not meddled with the FASB, Amazon would be paying way more in tax as a percentage of their financial accounting income. It's Congress that created that like discrepancy between the tax they pay and their financial accounting income because of their previous political meddling. Uh, no, I guess I'm not 100% sure what you're referring to. <laughs> so the, the, we have, the Financial Accounting Standards Board has tried to revise the way we book for financial accounting uh, purposes, stock-based compensation. And they haven't yep. been allowed to do it several times by Congress. Yeah, that's that. So it is true. And in fact, there's a very interesting history related to stock based compensation accounting, because if you go back even further, like into, say, the 80s and 90s, the accounting expense was even less than it currently is. And it has become you take more expense now than you used to. But still not but still not all the expense that the economics it. would dictate. And the reason why it's yeah. not as much as the economics would dictate is because every time the FASB tries to do it, Congress steps in and says, uh, you can't do that. It's like we yeah. we've had a preview to what could happen if you let the if you let Congress's foot in the door of the FASB, just doesn't seem like it's going to be a good thing. Yeah, well, and another interesting thing, I'll just tell the story real quick. So during the campaign, um, Elizabeth Warren made a proposal to tax financial accounting income, and and I wrote a op-ed which is in the Wall Street Journal, and Jeff wrote an op-ed which was on the Hill. And also, Jeff has testified before Congress and done various written in various places about this issue. And one of the predictions that we made was, oh, politicians might start fiddling around with financial accounting. And sure enough, like three months later or something like that, um, 11 senators, Elizabeth Warren among them, and Bernie Sanders wrote a letter to the Financial Accounting Standards Board urging the adoption of a specific policy that they believed would aid in tax enforcement, which, of course, is it's okay. You can obviously ask FASB to do whatever you want. But that objective of tax enforcement is something that really should not be what financial accounting standards are all about. Financial accounting standards should be about providing information to investors. And if you want something to help with tax enforcement, you can get the Internal Revenue Service to have the power to collect that information, which would help in enforcement. So, yeah, so that, um, that was kind of an interesting example. So that was something that Scott and I and another colleague, um, Andrew Belknap, actually wrote a little a little like letter to the FASB saying we should like be careful about that. And when I was talking with colleagues about it, they would say, like, why are you writing this letter? It's so self-evidently true that like the FASB shouldn't be doing these things. Why are you even wasting your time with this? And I said, well, it's, it's not self-evidently true to the 11 senators who are asking FASB to do it. And in the end, like Congress does have some, could have some power over the FASB in, in a, more of a way than just like writing nice letters. Yeah. And what's interesting is in our letter, we didn't argue for or against the adoption of the standard. We basically just said to FASB, don't adopt standards using the objective of tax enforcement as the basis. Adopt standards because they provide better information to users of financial statements. Um, okay. So um, let's talk about another possible issue. Let's suppose that in a, some crazy world, uh, financial accounting, accounting rules get really messed up because Congress is exerting their influence. Uh, one, another negative or concerning ramification would be that investors will still demand information. 
which could lead to an increase in the use of pro forma reporting, which is already a controversial practice in the financial accounting world. Pro forma meaning let's, let's report some income number which is not following the rules of GAAP but has some adjustments. And you can imagine that that might possibly increase. So that's, that's like another ramification. And I think- All right. I was going to ask you, Jeff, if you want to comment on that, please do. But I also want you to talk to me or talk to everybody here that's listening a little bit about the history of this, because I know you've thought about that. And it's quite fascinating, the history of the tax on gap. So, I mean, for a long time, we've been upset when we don't see companies paying enough in tax. And I phrase that in a very specific way, saying we don't think they're paying enough in tax because, I mean, it's it's a complicated thing, right? The, The tax code taxes taxable income. And if companies have taxable income, they'll pay tax on it. Uh, and we seem to get really kind of upset by the fact that a very large, successful looking company might not actually have taxable income because of the way we've written the tax code. So there's been a whole bunch of different things we've done this. I mean, we had the corporate AMT, so it's a corporate uh, alternative minimum tax, which uh, instead of the approach we're taking right now, it basically said we have the tax tax number that we don't like apparently because it's not like collecting enough in taxes. So we're going to take out a few of these things uh, and then have this adjusted taxable income number and we're going to tax that. So we did that for a long time. Actually in the late 80s, uh, kind of a very important piece to this story as far as the current proposal is that part of the corporate AMT was to adjust in ways that were related to book income. So it was basically an indirect way of taxing book income. And I mean, the thinking back then again was, you know, we have this number, it's an alternative way to account profits, maybe we should just tax it, we're going to use it as part of the, the alternative minimum tax base, and it didn't work out well, right? So we had that in place for a couple of years, it got taken out of, uh, out of the law. Um, and we have actually, a, you know, what we know, what financial accountants know about the ramifications of taxing book income are from that, like a little historical episode, right? We have uh, empirical evidence that firms did manage their income as a result of that. So this is something Scott alluded to a little bit before, but to to elaborate a little bit more, what do we mean by that? We mean, well, for financial accounting purposes, companies want to have high income in general, especially like to beat thresholds, uh, to beat earnings targets, those kind of thing. They want to have low taxable income. And so when you tax book income, the company's going to say, well, okay, we, we have the ability to make financial accounting decisions to lower our financial accounting income. We're going to manage earnings to pay less in income, to pay less in taxes. And we know that they did that in the late 80s as a, as a result of uh, this previous version of the law. Now, something that's very different then, or now versus then, is back then, presumably they just kind of like, outside investors saw that lower uh, income, they said, well, that's like not great that the company's not doing as well, maybe we wanna sell their stock, maybe they're not doing as well um, selling stuff to their customers because companies had more limited ways of communicating to investors their actual financial accounting outcomes. Now, just like Scott said, I, I think you're going to see companies managing down their earnings and then coming back and saying, you know, you know, looks like earnings per share is a dollar, but it's really a dollar 10 because we made these adjustments and we have this pro forma income number or this gap, non-gap, we call it pro forma number, this non-gap number, this street earnings number, uh, this number that we're going to adjust in ways that don't follow GAAP, that often look more positive for the company, and investors might rely on that number uh, to get the true sense of how the company's doing. So that might actually be good in that it might give companies or give investors a better portrayal of the firm because you know we, we messed up the GAAP number to get out of paying taxes. We're going to give them the real number that isn't messed up 
uh, you, through poor formal earnings, but also just opens the door for companies to get more and more creative with how they account for things in general, right? Once you've encouraged them to use poor formal numbers, we, you know, gap is off the table and companies can do whatever they want. That, and I think that's the scary part. The reason we have gap and the Financial Accounting Standards Board, we create standards to help the earnings numbers and the other financial statements be comparable, be reliable, and all of these characteristics that we desire. And with pro forma numbers, there's no uh, standard setters that is helping to enforce that type of, uh, those types of characteristics in the pro forma reports. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, like, like here's, let me, let me try to give like a concrete example of, of how this might happen. So if you're Amazon and you have 11 billion of tax and 11 billion of income, but no tax. And so you're gonna be forced to pay some tax on your financial accounting earnings. Of course, you might say, well, maybe we can lower our financial accounting earnings. How might they do that? It's possible under certain circumstances to alter slightly the way that share-based compensation is given so that it's treated like a debt instrument. And when that happens, you can mark to market the expenses that you uh, record, which essentially would take Amazon's 11 billion of income and reduce it significantly, possibly even down to close to zero. But of course, Amazon would be the first company on the planet to say, oh, well, the reason this happened is because we treated this share-based compensation as an expense, but really it's not. So here's our income before share-based compensation. Or if you're FedEx, what you would do is you would say, well, we use this really long depreciation rate, uh, time, long depreciation life for our airplanes. For financial accounting purposes, let's start making that shorter, but then we'll just report an EBITDA number, earnings before depreciation. And we'll say, look, depreciation is a non-cash charge. It doesn't really matter for your you know, wealth as a shareholder. So ignore that number and let's move forward. And with like 100% probability, that type of stuff would happen. It's already happening. It would just potentially become worse. And the reason it's concerning is because it's not governed by any kind of regulator. Yeah. I think, so I think one thing, you know, we talked about some of these negative consequences of this. I think one thing that we should talk about, Scott, is the alternative to this. Well, one alternative to this, actually why we got here in this particular um, kind of economic proposal planning in the last few weeks is we got here because we wanted to, the Democrats wanted to increase the corporate tax rate, but there was a particular senator who wasn't willing to do it. So, so she said, look, you know, we don't want to increase corporate tax rate. How can we still get more money out of corporations to be able to pay for all the spending we want to do? And so they came up with this plan. So how do we, how would we think about just increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% up to some other higher number as opposed to this? Like, is there, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, so really the question is um, how to raise revenue from corporations, I think is what you're asking. Correct. And so I am super biased here by I think my, you know, training as an accountant and as an economist and so forth, which is when I see lots of preferences in the tax code for this thing or that thing, I get nervous because when you include preferences, you increase distortions. And this gets back to the age old argument of a low rate with a broad base is better than a high rate with a narrow base. And what that basically means is the same rate doesn't apply to all firms or, or the same rate might, but the types of income that are excluded 
are changing depending on the industry you're in or your business model or something like that. You know, like I'm very much in favor of um, eliminating um, like strange or unusual preferences, I call them, or special tax deals and keeping the base broad. And I think we've gotten far, far away from that. I think the base is not as broad as it should be. And like, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but I, I guess I kind of think like, yeah, broaden the base by getting rid of all the crazy little deductions that exist for this firm or this little industry or that little thing and, and make it a, a, a more simple system. I think, I mean, I think it is a cop-out. I think it is, I, I agree with it. I think it's like the economically true it answer. It is a cop-out, he says. It is a cop-out answer. Here's a little story that I think is pretty fascinating. So I was, uh, at one point in my career, dealing with a elected representative and we wanted to say like what um we wanted we wanted to make this point exactly right we should like take away these these things and we wanted to come up with some examples of negative things you should get from the tax code and so i had like several different examples that i was willing to say we should not do this and we should not do that and they just seemed like you know, there's really no good reason these things should be in the tax code um and the person that i was dealing with uh we basically just took out that paragraph because and in, in, you know there were several many taxpayers that this person cared about that would benefit from this proposal benefit from this thing benefit from this thing and it's not that any of those things had a, a huge economic rationale it's not that this politician like put those things in the tax code they've been in there for like decades but taking them out would affect their constituents right so it, it like you have to layer on the politics and realize the answer just like oh let's just like take out the preferences every preference that you add like somebody gets richer because of that, some company gets richer because of that, and they're gonna fight really hard if you wanna take it away from them. Okay, so you needed to ask your question differently. You needed to ask, what can be done that is politically viable to increase more tax, or you know, raise more tax yeah, from so, corporations? Uh, well, actually what I ask is, how do, you, how do you think about taxing book income versus just increasing the corporate tax rate, which I think is the much more politically uh -huh. viable, uh, viable situation, but which does uh, hit a different set of firms. Yeah, I mean, to me, what's really the difference? You're raising the tax rate. You're just doing it in a more sneaky way in some ways. And you're not doing it for everybody. You're only doing it for these sort of sort of super rich companies, right? right? And if what your objective is is to tax the 50 most profitable companies a little more, I mean, politically, you might be able to say, okay, we're going to have a progressive rate which is 21% up until you have a billion in profit, and then it's 25%. But the interesting thing is that wouldn't even affect these companies because they're reporting zero in taxable income. The problem is the base, not the rate. The problem is the base. It's not the rate. Well, so, that again, is the it's what, it's, uh, it depends on what problem you're talking about. It's, it's the problem is that like we get real upset in our heart or our soul or whatever part of us gets upset uh, when we see these companies not paying enough in tax. In that case, it's the base. But if the problem is we just need more money because like we want to spend a lot of money, then the problem is both the base and the rate. We could collect more rate from the base we currently have and get more revenue. And I, and yep. I, and I actually kind of really quite disagree with something you just said. You said something like if we just raise the corporate rate versus tax book income. It's kind of the same thing, uh, but like a little sneakier. I think the sneakier part is super important. I think we need to have like a transparent tax code that doesn't like go in through the back door. But like all of the problems we talked about for the first 25 minutes of this program wouldn't be problems if we just increased the corporate tax rate. 
right? Yep. So the, the, the degradation yeah. of the reliability of corporate profit of uh, financial accounting income because of like the FASB's political incentives, because companies would manage earnings, those wouldn't happen if you just increase the corporate tax rate. I mean, to me, if you increase the corporate tax rate, like the higher it gets, the more distortionary it is, but it's very linear. It's just like, it's a little more distortionary. If you go from 21 to 25%, it'd be like a little tiny bit worse, but the world's not gonna end, right? We've had it at 35%. The world was like, okay, it gets better as far as like distortion, the lower it gets. It gets a little worse, the higher it goes. But if you open up this new, this new thing, it's a fundamentally different tax with a fundamentally new different set of incentives that I, I think would be quite detrimental. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said there. And it is kind of amazing to think about what's really underlying here, the, the motivation here. It is sort of motivated in part by this desire to have enough revenue to offset the expenditures in the bill. But it's clearly also motivated by a different objective, which is this idea that there are people or companies or whatever you want to call them that have a whole bunch and are not paying. And that's many of these um, progressive uh, Democrats have campaigned very fervently on the idea of taxing the rich. The big corporations are getting away with sort of unfair advantages. And that second objective of kind of redistribution of wealth or, you know, dealing with inequities in income or wealth in our society clearly seem to be at play here. And then I do think there's the other objective, which is just what's going to look good for me. And I think if you are Elizabeth Warren or if you're Bernie Sanders or if you're some of the more progressive Democrats, the idea that you can impose a higher tax on a company that has a very high income is super appealing to your base. And I think that's a huge part of the motivation, but it's probably not the economically most efficient way yeah. to get the revenue needed. I mean, I, I would completely agree with that. So there was a, a few years back, um, the advisor to one of the senators who's very in favor of this tax was called me up. It was before anybody, you know, this round of this uh, tax was on the table. So they were just thinking about starting a tax book income. They called me and asked me what I thought about this. I said, I don't think it's a good idea. And in this long conversation that I had with this person, I actually asked, like, so why, like, why do you want to do this? Is it really, do you really think this is the best way to raise revenue? And the person started out by saying, oh, yes, this is like a great way to raise revenue. And we want to, we want to like provide all these goods and services that the government currently isn't. So we need more revenue. And then they ended up by saying like, and, and my, my boss, this politician who I won't name, my boss, when they're campaigning, people really like when they talk about this. And it came pretty clear from the answer that like it wasn't necessarily the best way to raise revenue, but rather it just made for like really good campaign speeches to talk about like I'm the we're gonna tax the number that they that the CEOs tell the shareholders and we're gonna like stick it to these large corporations. With really no concern for these like huge distortions that they're going to cause. And I'm not sure if it's because they don't understand these distortions or just wish to disregard them, but it, it it's concerning. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyering and I am joined as always by the amazing Tax Museum curator at the University of North Carolina, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Today, Jeff and I want to talk to you about what's going on with, well, of course, taxes. But we heard a few things in President Biden's State of the Union address 
and we thought we should discuss them on tax chats. So I think what we should do, Jeff, is start off by playing a short 10-second clip. Of so it's President like we're going to have President Biden on tax chats. President Biden is coming on tax chats. Quick guest. It would be amazing if it was live, but this is the best we can do for now. Give us another few months and we might have him live. So here goes. Listen carefully, Jeff, and then we shall uh, respond. Last year, 55 of the Fortune 500 companies earned $40 billion in profit and paid zero in federal taxes. All right, Jeff. Fact check that statement. Well... It is unambiguously false. In what way? Well, he said last year, and he's citing a ITEP report from 2021. It's now 2022, so it turns out it's just two years ago. So it was factually inaccurate, actually. And and I mean, and that seems trivial, and it is actually kind of trivial. But like we make these statements all the time where we use data that's old. I mean, it's probably the most egregious version of this is we still see occasionally people talk about um, like transfer pricing and income shifting results from like 2015, 2016 to try to justify current policy moves today. And it's a little bit silly. Like we've moved on. It turns out we like passed a law between now and then we need to use as up to the date statistics as we can to justify the policies we're passing today. And what is, I mean, what he's looking at is not, this would not be a complicated theme to recompute, but this uh, this firm did it in early, or this, this group, ITEP, did it in early 2021, and that's available to him, so he's using that uh, those, those stale numbers. But Okay, but so it's it's only inaccurate insofar as he said last year, and it really, he should have said two years ago, 55 companies reported lots yeah, of you don't, and <clears> You don't like tax. my biggest beef with this. Yeah, but that's, that's true. So there certainly are a lot of companies that will earn income and we can get what kind of income that is uh, and we'll pay very little if nothing in taxes that's uh, certainly true every single year it happens every single year it has happened and i there's it would be very difficult to create a tax system in which that didn't happen that would be politically feasible okay so that's what we want to talk about every year there are a pretty large number of companies something greater than 20 probably every year and these are big companies, publicly traded companies, and they report profits to their shareholders. And sometimes it's very high profits, maybe even in the billions of dollars for a single company sometimes. And yet they appear to pay very low or possibly even zero taxes to the government. And this happens for a variety of reasons. There's like many, many reasons. But sometimes I think the public at large, when they hear this, they think of their own personal situation and they think, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could earn a bunch of money and not have to pay taxes at all. But that's not quite how it works in the corporate world. Maybe tell us a little bit about why it's not exactly how it works in the corporate world, Jeff. Yeah, so about 30 seconds ago when you were summarizing, you actually added a key word to the statement. So President Biden said that these companies earned a bunch of profits and paid no taxes. And you said that they earned a bunch of profits that they reported to their shareholders and reported nothing in taxes or and paid nothing in taxes. And there's a, there's a big difference. It's kind of a huge caveat in that companies have different ways that they account for how they do. And so this is, this is I mean, this is basically what gives us the result is there are different accounting rules when companies are filling out their tax return 
compared to when they're filling out their financial statements or preparing their financial statements that they report to shareholders. And the different two systems of accounting have different incentives. They'll give you two different numbers. And because of these differences, it's quite possible to report large numbers to shareholders and small numbers, if not zero, to the Internal Revenue Service. Okay, so when I teach that concept in my class here at Duke to MBA students, and sometimes when I'm speaking to other audiences, which happens on a semi-regular basis, and I'll say there are two different accounting systems, one for financial accounting that you report to shareholders and one for tax purposes, which is reported to the government, most people's first reaction is, that sounds scandalous. The companies must have somehow rigged the system in their favor, and that is a terrible system. Why do we let them have their cake and eat it too? So we want to talk about why there are two accounting systems and whether that makes sense at all. Do you want to talk to us just very briefly about why there are two systems and whether it makes sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the two systems basically have two different goals, right? It, it might seem to the average person, when you say profits, it should just be like one universal definition of profits. But it really depends on what you want uh, want to do with that number of profits, with that with that value for profits. And if you have a different goal for that value, you're going to create an accounting system that achieves that purpose. So what is the goal of the Internal Revenue Code? So the Internal Revenue Code, again, passed by Congress, it's our tax law. The goal of that has a whole bunch of different goals, but one of them is to raise revenue, so like actually tax companies and individuals so they can raise revenue to fund our government. Another is to actually create differences in behavior, so to incent taxpayers to actually take certain behaviors. So we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different uh, examples of this, but one simple example would be we have a type of depreciation, which we'll talk about exactly what it is, that encourages companies to spend more on buying you know, more factories and machines and investing more to, to spur the economy. Uh, so we have, you know, those are some of the goals of our tax system. And so then, what you're saying is when Congress sits around and passes laws, those laws end up becoming part of the tax accounting system. And Congress doesn't sit around and say, how can we create an accounting system that creates the most accurate number in terms of representing economic value, they say, what's a number that we might create that might provide, as an example, an incentive for a company to invest in a machine so that it will hire more workers? That's what you're talking about. Well, I mean, so when you phrase it, phrase it that way, I think the most, the most uh, accurate depiction is they sit around and think, what's, uh, how can we create these rules so that we'll get reelected? And that companies are going to give us the most money, we're going to appease to the most shareholder, to the most... Um, to the most voters. I mean, their goal is really to get reelected. And that sounds like a negative thing. In a democracy, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. If you have everybody who's informed and they're paying attention, that isn't the case. But yeah, they're trying to get elected. One reason they're getting elected is, is to appease all these groups, uh, some of them who want tax incentive for tax incentives for engaging in certain behaviors. Well, and, and I could say one way to enhance your opportunities to get reelected would be to make sure the economy is doing well. It's been shown like repeatedly when the economy is performing well, people, uh, public officials tend to have a better chance of being 
reelected. I mean, if you if you would have had some kind of tax system in place that would have incented a whole bunch of oil drilling a year and a half ago, we'd be sucking a lot more crude out of the ground right now, and we might not be seeing the gas prices we do. I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch to think that, but again, yeah, if you yep. if you solve economic problems, you might get reelected. Yep. Okay, so so politicians who sit around in Congress and create the tax laws for whatever purpose that they are uh, trying to achieve, which, as we are now describing, could be varied. What, what in contrast, are financial accounting rules designed to do? Also, like the, the pure version of this story is that the Financial Accounting Standards Board, these are the people who create the financial accounting standards, the rules that you use to prepare financial statements, uh, they just want to ec- reflect the economic reality of the firm so that stakeholders like investors, equity investors, or like bondholders, or like suppliers, can know how the company is actually doing. So if you are an equity investor, you want to know what the future cash flows of the firms are or what the future cash flow of the firm is. And so the FASB is going to try to create rules that help you understand what those future cash flows are. Okay, and so you caveated what you said a little bit because I think what you're imagining, and this is probably true, the FASB is not completely immune from influence by companies and by other yeah, interested stakeholders. They're all human beings, just like the rest of us. But they are. Yeah. But they don't have to worry about getting elected every two years. They don't raise money to re-campaign. I mean, so it, you know, some people will say, "Oh, people lob- lobby the FASB all the time." That's certainly true. But with the FASB lobbying, like happens sometimes with Congress. That's like all they do all day is, is meet with constituents and try to get people's opinions and try to raise money because they, you know, in the House of Representatives are getting elected every single two years or every two years. Whereas at the FASB, much longer terms, their appointments, not elections. You don't have to raise money. It's just a fundamentally different set of incentives. Yeah. And the FASB, or I don't know if we define this or not for those who are listening, the FASB is the Financial Accounting Standards Board. And the FASB has a very deliberative process and it's very, it's pretty open. People can write comment letters and so forth. And in the end, it's not as political as uh, the tax system. And I think, I think most people would agree with that. I mean, the tax system, when we say political, we often, you know, we talk about like an academic department, how political it is. When we're talking about the tax system, it's literally by definition political because it's people whose full-time job is to be politicians who are creating these, these rules, right? It's, it's the definition of political. Yep. Right. Exactly. So now let's think about a given company. Choose any company, and this company exists, and it's selling something, for example, and generating revenues, and in the process of selling that thing, it incurs expenses, and those expenses are deductions for tax purposes. They also reduce income for financial reporting purposes. But sometimes any given economic transaction is accounted for in a different way for financial accounting and for tax accounting. So I think what we should do is choose some of our, some of the biggest, most common differences. Or most interesting. talk about why they exist. Or most interesting ones. Or maybe some more interesting ones. They don't have to be the biggest or most common. They could be kind of the fascinating ones. I think I know which fascinating one you want to talk about, but I'm going to hold off for just a minute because I think we should talk about a common one before we talk about a fascinating one. Okay, Go. What do you All got? Right. I think we should first talk about depreciation. Ah, the most boring one, and unfortunately the biggest one. The biggest and the most boring. And I'm going to just explain this by giving like a very simple example. Suppose a company buys a machine 
and the machine is going to be used to produce product. When the company buys that machine, for financial accounting purposes, the company will look at that machine and they'll determine the useful life of that machine. So they might say, oh, this machine will provide benefits to us for 10 years and then it will be worn out and we'll throw it away. So they might say, we will then depreciate the cost of that machine over the course of 10 years. So if the machine cost a million dollars, you might take a $100,000 expense on your financial statements every year for 10 years to reflect the fact that the machine is providing useful, um, something useful to the company each year for 10 years. That kind of makes sense from an economic point of view, right? You're wanting to know how much of this machine did I use up? I used up a tenth of it. Okay, I'll record an expense for one-tenth of the value of the machine. For tax purposes, the government sometimes says, what we really want companies to do is we want them to buy more machines. And if we want them to buy more machines, maybe if we give them a tax benefit for buying their machines, they'll buy more of them because they'll become cheaper. And so what the government does is the government says in under current tax law, instead of taking a deduction of $100,000 a year for 10 years, how about we just let you take a giant $1 million deduction in the first year and then no deductions after that? So the total amount of deductions is the same, but you get to take all the deduction in the first year. And as most of you can imagine quite easily, um, if you have a big deduction now, you don't have to pay pay the tax now. You instead pay the tax later. But paying tax later is less painful than paying tax now because you can take the savings and you can invest them and those invested savings will grow. And so the economic burden of the tax goes down because you pay the tax later instead of now. But this creates a conundrum because... The depreciation schedule for financial accounting and for tax accounting are now different, which means the income for financial accounting and tax accounting will also be different. And that is the most common example of why financial, why financial accounting and tax give different answers. Yeah, Does that so trouble you? It doesn't trouble me a bit again. So this is Congress creating this law that's creating this difference. So this isn't like some choice that the companies do. It's not some like planning scheme or strategy. They're not engaged in shenanigans, if you will. Um, they are just following the tax code that says do you know, take this take this action so that it will reduce the after tax cost of investing. And so how do we? What's interesting is we know that this is the largest like in aggregate uh, difference between book and tax. And it's pretty mundane, right? Not a whole lot of people would say accelerated depreciation is something scandalous. Certainly, you might object to it. You might say, well, maybe it's not that effective. We have some academic work that suggests it does you know, produce more, more investment. Um, but you might say, you know, we don't need to use up revenue trying to promote this, these kinds of incentives. So you, could, you could debate about it on policy grounds, but there's no question it's legal, right? That's just what it is. And actually, this got uh, this very thing got FedEx in trouble a couple of years ago because FedEx reported several billion dollars in income and they had didn't pay any tax. And if you dig into their financial statements, one of the biggest reasons why they didn't pay tax was because they went and purchased a lot of new equipment. And when FedEx purchases equipment, it's things like airplanes and trucks to drive around and 
all kinds of like expensive things. And those things are useful because they, um, you know, provide uh, jobs for people who work for FedEx and they ship our goods all around. And, um, but those, when you, when FedEx purchased all of those new trucks and airplanes and so forth, they got giant deductions in the first year. And so they paid no tax in the year that they made those purchases. But what is not apparent unless one thinks carefully through the scenario, it's not like the tax went away. It was just not paid in the first year. And instead, in the second year, FedEx won't have any deductions and they will pay more tax in the second year, in the third year, in the fourth year, in the fifth year, and so on. And that, so it and does get actually, companies in trouble, but it, it's not, it really is not scandalous. It's just doing what the law says. And, the, and that part that you just mentioned is actually super important because, I mean, President Biden is going to say 55 companies didn't pay any taxes, you know, two years ago, I guess, if you were accurate, uh, and, and had all this income. But it's going to be, to some extent, different companies every year. And that's actually super important. It's not like some of these companies just persistently never pay any taxes. It's just they had a, a big growth year. They bought like a lot of stuff for whatever reason. And then next year, for the reasons you're saying, like all of those differences would reverse. You would, you know, in, in year two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, you're going to actually have bigger financial accounting deductions than you are going to have uh, deductions on your tax return or financial accounting expenses and deductions on your tax return. And so it's, it's going to be different and you're actually going to pay pay taxes, right? So a lot of these things reverse over time, but you know it doesn't really matter because you're going to get another company. And so it'll, it'll be 55 companies every year, but it might be a different 55 companies every year. And the speech wouldn't have been nearly as powerful or inciting to his base if he would have said, there are 55 companies that didn't pay any tax this year. They're going to pay next year instead. And they might have actually paid quite a lot in tax two years or three years or four years ago, and they're going to pay taxes next year. And by the way, this is because the Congress, which I was part of for a long time and which I support still today, supports accelerated depreciation. Yeah. Okay. So um, it is sometimes uh, these things become scandalous because they are taken out of context possibly or um, people don't really understand exactly why these big companies didn't pay any tax. But um, depreciation is one possible reason. But there are many of these examples, not just depreciation. So let's think about some others that might be a little more fascinating. So do you want to talk about, for example, fines for illegal behavior? Yeah. So again, I think conceptually, there's a couple ways to think about this. So depreciation, there's a difference between Congress wants to incent kind of one kind of behavior. But what Scott just mentioned is fines for illegal behavior um, is kind of the same thing. Congress essentially doesn't want to incent illegal behavior. So if you provide a deduction for something or if you provide like a larger deduction for something, you're going to get more of that something. And so what Congress basically did I mean, quite some time ago is that if, if a company or kind of any taxpayer, but if a company does something illegal and they have to pay a fine because of it, they don't get a tax deduction for that. So if you like dump nuclear waste on some know, playground for some school and the EPA comes in and finds you a billion dollars, you do not get a billion dollar tax deduction. That's not deductible. It makes a permanent difference because why is it a permanent difference? Because you do, you are required to take an expense for financial accounting purposes. Again, because shareholders, you know, they're not out to like save, save school children and playgrounds from nuclear waste. They just want to know, is that cash gone? Uh, is it, is it there? Is it here? You know, what, what's the value of the company? And it's gone. 
doesn't matter why the company paid it. So it is an expense. It's a required mandated expense for financial accounting purposes. You have the billion dollar expense. Net income will be lower by a billion dollars. But for financial accounting purposes, it will be, or sorry, for tax purposes, it will actually be higher. So that's a, a difference between the two systems. And and what's interesting about that difference is it will never converge. So with the depreciation, I take all of the depreciation for tax in one year, and I just spread out the depreciation for financial accounting over 10 years. But over the course of 10 years, the total amount of depreciation is the same for tax and book. It just happens over a different period of time. With these differences that you're talking about, fines for illegal behavior, I'm going to take an expense for financial accounting, but I will never, ever take a deduction for tax purposes. And so the differences never reconcile. Um, You mentioned uh, dumping nuclear waste on a playground, which I have not recently seen a headline of that happening. It happens all the time in The Simpsons. In The Simpsons. It's the most common thing ever. (laughs) Yes. Okay, but outside of The Simpsons. Although I guess they never get fined. There's one episode they get fined. But outside The Simpsons, what what are normal things that you might see? It's a good question. So I have seen um, in recent years Google, which is actually Alphabet, if you want to go look at their financial statements, has reported large differences between their financial accounting and their tax accounting based on fines for illegal behavior, and the illegal behavior was monopolistic behavior in Europe. And the European Union sued them, took them to court, won, and fined Microsoft billions of dollars, or sorry, not Microsoft, Google, billions of dollars. Actually, I think both Microsoft and Google have had this happen, but Google is the one I'm thinking of. Billions of dollars, and those billions of dollars were expenses that were reported on the financial statements, but there was no tax deduction allowed for those illegal fines. So that's yeah. it's a you, it's a real thing, and it really does happen. And you do see any spills. I, I can't name any nuclear waste spill that was thing, but for example, the BP oil spill, um, it was a real thing that produced a lot of fines, and they did not deduct those for finance, for tax purposes. And what's interesting is in the United States. That when you have this Justice Department settlement, it's often the case that you don't actually go to court. It won't actually be adjudicated. You kind of just like agree and settle on some amount. But as part of the settlement, most uh, more recently, the Justice Department will actually spell out like, "Look, this isn't. You didn't technically do anything illegal because we haven't found you guilty of a crime. We're just, you're just like admitting that you're going to pay this money without admitting any wrongdoing." But they will specifically say, "And you're not allowed to deduct this." And the two parties will agree not to deduct it as if it were illegal, although it wasn't technically illegal because it wasn't adjudicated properly. And and that's an interesting detail that I am not 100% aware of with, uh, with uh, Europe and Google. I don't know exactly how the fines were created and levied, but I do know that they reported that they could not deduct those fines. So yeah. it could I mean, be if you go through the process and they about. actually, if they determine you actually did something illegal, then there's no, there's no negotiation. You just did something illegal. Tax code doesn't allow it. Um, so what's interesting about this example, though, is this actually won't produce President Biden's result. It'll produce the opposite of President Biden's result because you'll actually have higher financial accounting income. Or sorry, you'll have lower financial accounting income than you will tax income because tax doesn't allow the deduction. But it's and, still and the same concept as like you, we have two different finan- two different systems. They have two different purposes. You get a different number. Well, and what you're pointing out is that Right now, the statutory tax rate for companies is 21%. And whenever a company pays 0%, it makes headlines and it might possibly, you might become the poster child in the State of the Union address. What we don't talk about, but 
often happens is companies who report effective tax rates, not of 21%, not of 0%, but of 50% or 70% or even sometimes 100% where they're paying what appears to be all of their income in taxes. And those examples happen all the time, but they never get talked about in the press. And why so do here, they happen? Here's actually an exception to that. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Andrew Belknap and I, so Andrew Belknap is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. We wrote a, a, a piece for Fortune in the press. Its name was actually Stop Shaming Corporations with Meaninglessly Low Affected Tax Rates. It was actually a response to one of these ITEP reports where you like, have these very low tax rates. And we point out some examples of exactly what you're saying. So the, the article actually starts out since 2017 when Congress lowered this corporate statutory rate to 21%. VF Corporation makes things like North Face and Vans had a domestic affected tax rate of 174%. But you don't ever, you know, they didn't give uh, they didn't give VF like an award. They didn't say, oh, this is so amazing. You're just so generous with your money. Because like it's, it's just like these differences in book and tax and just weird one-off situations that create this and it's not something to get all you know focused on so an, an effective tax rate of 174% would imply that VF Corp earned $100 and paid 174 in taxes which is sort of crazy to think about because when you say earned it gets a little bit tricky and you can have like like mergers and acquisitions that do weird things and you get small denominator problems where they earn just like very 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 little but yeah the rate was 174% over those years. Yeah, and there's, like you're saying, uh, there's many reasons that that can happen. We we have described two of them in detail, fines for illegal activities. Um, that one that one would possibly create that, although probably not 174%. But there are other reasons, and each of the reasons can make the tax rate go higher or lower, but we only tend to hear about it when they go lower. Yeah, and, um, what's, here, and what's interesting about these is like we we talk about you know, when, when President Biden talks about this, is if like some secret that companies are doing something shady, whereas like in reality, companies are required, public companies are required by law every year to report on why their tax rate is what it is. So there's a, call, a thing called an effective tax rate reconciliation where they'll say a statutory tax rate is twenty one percent. My tax rate is zero percent. How did I get from twenty one percent to zero percent? And they'll just list out line item by line item. And these aren't, again, they're not secrets. They're not nefarious things. They're just differences in the two accounting systems and other items that create these reconciling items. And they're just generally not that scandalous. In fact, if you look at these 55 companies, I mean, you're not going to find like illegal behavior. You're not going to find all of them getting audited by the IRS. You're just going to find a bunch of different situations, differences in accounting that create this result. And so if we look through the types of things that show up in those reconciling items. We've talked about the biggest one, which is depreciation. We've talked about a fun one, which is uh, fines for illegal behavior. Another big one, not the biggest, but another big one that's been in the press a lot lately lately is um, differences that arise because of stock option compensation. Um, So maybe I'll just describe that briefly and we can discuss it as well. When a company grants... uh, compensation to its employees in the form of shares as opposed to cash, um, the accounting for financial statements is complicated and the tax accounting is a little bit complicated. So here's what happens. Suppose that um, an employee decides to work for Amazon. It's very common for Amazon to grant their employees what are called restricted stock shares. And what that means is 
Amazon promises to give the employee a certain number of shares of stock, but they can't actually have them until a certain number of years pass, like five years. In the time between when the shares are promised and when the employee actually gives them, the price of the shares could obviously change. But what happens for financial accounting purposes is when Amazon grants the shares, it says, well, what are the shares worth today on the day we promise to give them away? And if they're worth, say, $1,000, then Amazon will say, okay, we need to record compensation expense of $1,000. And they might uh, spread out that $1,000 expense over the course of the vesting period, the, the, the waiting period. Uh, but they'll record an expense of $1,000. When the employee actually receives the stock, then the employee has to pay tax on the stock, just like they were paid in cash, except they were paid with stock. And they have to pay tax for the value of the shares on the day that they receive the shares, not on the day that they were promised the shares. So if the shares have gone up in value, say now the shares are worth $3,000 instead of $1,000, the employee will have to pay tax on the $3,000. And the government says, if you compensate somebody with shares, you get a tax deduction, just like you would get if you compensated somebody with cash. And the value of the deduction is equal to the value of the compensation on the day that the employee recognized the gain. So if the shares had gone up, the tax deduction for the company, for Amazon, would have been $3,000 because that's how much the employee had to recognize in their own personal taxes. But the financial accounting expense was only $1,000 because that was the value of the shares on the day that the company promised to give the shares to their employees. So as a result, there's a big discrepancy. I think this is an interesting case because with with depreciation and with... um, with fines, fees, and penalties, like there's a there's just different a different incentive in the two systems, right? The two systems have different purposes. But what you just explained isn't actually a difference in in purposes. It's just kind of like a philosophical difference that different people have different opinions on. And and kind of the analogy that a lot of people would use is if I give you a lottery ticket that I spend a dollar for, and you have it, and then you learn that it's worth a million dollars, did I give you a dollar, or did I give you a million dollars? Well differing people feel differently about that or did i give you like whatever probability the ticket had of winning multiplied by a million dollars like what what i actually gave you and how bad i should feel about having given it up um is not necessarily straightforward and people feel differently about it so it's not that there's like differences in the purpose it's just the two different bodies have account- decided to account for this uh for different reasons and there's like some political background to that but it's it's not necessarily and, different and, uh, and the, purposes so, there so the financial accounting standards board is saying if Jeff gives Scott a lottery ticket that he paid $1 for, then Jeff has given up $1 of value. So I need to tell shareholders that I've given up $1 of value. And because Jeff can't take back the lottery ticket from me, that's all he's given up. He just he gave up a dollar. The, the IRS says, we're not going to give you a deduction for promising to give something to somebody. You haven't actually delivered that lottery ticket to him yet. You're not going to deliver it to him for five more years. So that the IRS says, hey, we'll just tax the individual when they actually receive it. And if it's a winning lottery ticket, you pay a lot of tax. And if it's a losing lottery ticket, you don't pay any tax. And, and that's and, actually a super important point is it's, it's not always a losing lottery ticket. So we always hear about these and they always create these differences and make the news when the stock price goes up by a lot. So the tax deduction is way more than financial accounting income. 
But that's often not actually the case. Sometimes they're they're about the same. Some, if the price goes down, like you'll actually get a smaller tax deduction. That's that's correct. Smaller deduction, and the employee would pay less tax. So it's interesting to think about this example because both philosophies have merit, and the Financial Accounting Standards Board has chosen one, and the tax authorities have chosen a different one. But because they're different, they create a discrepancy. That discrepancy under some circumstances results in the company reporting high income to shareholders and low tax to the government. Under other circumstances, it results in low income to shareholders and high tax to the government. But of course, when the newspapers write articles about this issue, they only focus on the companies that report high income to shareholders and low tax to the government. All right. So that's how stock options work. Do you have any other favorites that you want to talk about, or have we covered the uh, the big ones? I think we've covered most of the big ones. I mean, there's a there's a whole list of these types of things that happen, and if we wanted to get technical, we could talk about bad debt expense, or we could talk about goodwill depreciation, or amortization, or write-offs, but the ideas have been illustrated. There are differences between financial accounting and tax accounting for several reasons, One is just the government and the Financial Accounting Standards Board have different objectives. That would be like depreciation. And one is that they just have philosophical disagreement on how things should be accounted for. An example there would be stock option expense. So the next time, you know, you see a headline in the New York Times or in the Wall Street Journal or something that says, you know, this company didn't pay any tax, or the next time you hear the president in the State of the Union say, 55 companies didn't pay any tax. You'll probably hear the same statistic next year, too. It'll probably still be 55 because they're still using the now the three-year-old report, right? Yeah. Although that would just be um, extremely uh, lazy because it turns out every year a report is issued by different think tanks, and it will list the companies that haven't paid any tax but reported positive income to shareholders. Yeah, the tax shaming. The tax the shamers. Shaming. Yeah. And you know now, as a listener of this amazing podcast, that those numbers should be taken with a grain of salt because there are reasonable policies in place that create those discrepancies, and often they're temporary. They don't mean that the company literally paid no tax forever. They might just not pay it till next year or something like that. (laughs) 